Malachi. Uh, we're going to be looking at Malachi chapter 1 uh, through chapter 3, verse 5. So uh, the first, roughly the first half of Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament. And I'll read a bit of it, uh, I'll read it bit by bit as we work our way through this passage. Well, it is a time of cynicism. Uh, it's a time of disappointment and shattered dreams. It's a time of political upheaval. It's a time of financial uncertainty. It's a time when the people of God are divided, where leaders are faithless and abusive, a time when people are stingy and self-centered. And this description certainly fits our own time, but I'm actually talking about Malachi's day. This is such a relevant book for us because in many ways we stand in a very similar position uh, to the people in Malachi's day. We don't know exactly when the book is dated, but it is apparent as you read through the book that it's after the Babylonian exile has ended, after the people are back in the land, after the temple had been rebuilt. Uh, There's some debate about which particular decade it is in the 5th century. That need not deter us. Just think Ezra and Nehemiah, like that general era in Israel's history, which makes it very near the end of the Old Testament chronologically. And obviously it it caps off our English ordering of the Old Testament. It ends uh, the Book of the Twelve, the Minor Prophets, and it actually concludes the entirety of the Torah and the Prophets, all of the Law and the Prophets, culminate here in Malachi. It's the last prophetic word that we receive in the Old Testament before the arrival of John the Baptist. And so it's a highly relevant book for us in many ways. Again, it's after the exile, after the temple, uh, but the people of Israel recognize that it's not quite what the prophets had foretold. I mean, I think that's really the, the, the feel that we need to enter into as we read this book. That if you think about all that the writing prophets talked about, I mean, you think about a new covenant, a new people of God, a new temple. Uh, Isaiah just says it's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. Everything is going to be new. It's going to be far grander, far greater than anything that Israel had experienced before. And it's going to sweep all of the nations into it so that when the kingdom of God comes, the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And the Davidic king will sit and reign forever and ever. That's not what the people were experiencing in Malachi's day. So they're they're back in the land. The exile is over, but not really. And many of us may feel the same way. Our experience as New Covenant believers in Christ is somewhat analogous to this. Not exactly, right? Because in in the New Covenant, we have experienced the, the... the beginning fulfillment of these kingdom promises in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we have already begun to taste the the first fruits, as Paul calls it. The first fruits of the resurrection. The first fruits of the kingdom has already come upon us. And yet, surprisingly, something that the Old Testament prophets did not foresee, Jesus having fulfilled the kingdom promises, left. He went back to heaven. He promised to come again, but we now stand in a similar place, again, with some differences, but we stand in a similar place to Malachi and the people of his day. 
Which is why in the New Testament, the Apostle Peter can refer to the church as the elect exiles. In a sense, we also have experienced the end of the exile, but not yet. Right? It's, it's here in some sense, the first fruits of it through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We're living in the last days in some sense. And yet we're also living in this present evil age. We're living in a time where we are still exiles. We're still waiting for the coming kingdom. Which is, makes this a, a highly appropriate passage to reflect on in the two weeks just before Advent. Right? In just a couple of weeks, we'll, we will celebrate the first Sunday in Advent, those four Sundays before the Nativity, before we celebrate Christmas, the birth of Jesus. And part of what we're emphasizing in Advent is not just that Christ has come, but that Christ is coming. And we feel that tension, do we not? As we, as we continue to struggle with our own sins, with our own temptations, with our own, our own shattered dreams, our own heartbreaks, our own expectations that go unmet, we recognize that the exile is over, but not completely, not totally. Well, Malachi, uh, the author of this book, we read in verse 1, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Malachi's name here actually just means my messenger, or even it can be translated my angel. The, 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 the word here for uh, messenger is the, the word also used uh, for the angels, because the angels too were messengers of the Lord. So Malachi means my messenger. And that, that word or that phrase, my messenger or messenger, shows up a number of places in the book, and we'll see some of those this morning as we look at these first few chapters, um, the prophet himself is the messenger of the Lord. Israel, is, is, through her priests, are also said to be the messenger of the Lord, the priests of Israel, in, in uh, chapter 2, verse 7. At the beginning of chapter 3, we're going to read about the messenger, my messenger, who prepares the way for the Lord to come to his temple. And then the Lord himself is described as the messenger of the covenant. And so this, this is a, a, a kind of motif that runs throughout the book. Which again is fitting because this is the last prophetic word that we have uh, in the Old Testament. This is a message from the Lord to Israel and also to us as the church today. The book of Malachi is structured um, into seven disputes. And you can see that as we will work our way through this. Um, but you know, just, if you just pick up in verse 2, it says, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is, and, then, and then God responds, is not Esau Jacob's brother. And so you see it's a kind of disputation, right? God will say something, and then Israel will say, well, how is that really the case? And then God will respond. And so that's how the, the book is structured, is these sort of six different disputes or disputations between Israel uh, and God. And we're going to actually look at the first four of them today uh, in this passage. Um, and, and if I were to kind of summarize it as I kind of thought through the logic of, of these first four disputes, um, if I were to kind of summarize what's going on in this entire passage in, in just a single sentence, it would be this. God loves us, but we have despised Him through our own uh, half-hearted worship, through the way that we've profaned Him with our idolatry and adultery, and wearied him with our unfaithfulness. That's the kind of the three next sections. We, God loves us, but we have despised him, and we have profaned him, and we have wearied him. 
And then the, 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 that last dispute ends with God actually taking the initiative to solve the problem. That God is coming himself to purify us. So we'll just kind of take those bit at a time. The first dispute concerns God's love. We see that God loves us in verses 2 um, and following here in, in Malachi 1. So just follow along as I read a portion of this. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? And then God responds, is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country. And the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. So the book begins with an emphasis on the love of God. And it's demonstrated to Israel, specifically in terms of the way that God chose Israel and not Esau or Edom, the Edomites. So, you know, it's admittedly, I, I think... A, a hard teaching, right? I mean, I, I, I think it's, it's, it's hard to hear God say, I love you, and here's the evidence of that. I've punished this other people, right? I mean, that, that's admittedly hard. And, it's, and it doesn't really get any easier as we move into the New Testament because Paul quotes this very passage in Romans 9 where he's saying that God chose some people and not others in Israel. And here's evidence for it. He, he cites this very passage, Jacob I have loved, and then Esau, this is, gets even harder, right? Esau I've hated, right? So it's admittedly hard, but I think a couple of things to keep in mind as we consider this passage. One is that Edom's judgment was deserved, right? I mean, we read about Edom, woes against Edom, uh, oracles against Edom throughout the prophets. I mean, often uh, Edom is being rebuked, for shedding innocent blood in Israel, and, and especially for gloating over the Israelites when the Babylonians captured them. So rather than coming to the aid of their, in some sense, their distant relatives, right, um, the, the Edomites actually become the Samaritans uh, in, in, in some of, along, along with some of the, the northern tribes of Israel. Uh, but instead of sort of coming to the aid of their brethren, this, this, this people group that's closest uh, to Israel, they gloat over them as Babylon sacks Jerusalem and carries away Judah into exile. So Edom is not exactly an innocent party here. Now, I, I want to make clear, it's not that, it's not that um, Edom was somehow more deserving of God's punishment than Israel, though. I mean, that, I'm, not, I'm not suggesting that. I'm not saying that God chose Israel because they were better than Edom. That's not what I'm suggesting. It's just to say that Edom, like Israel, actually deserved God's punishment. So when God chooses to set his favor on Israel, it's not because they're better. And it's not because Edom deserved something. But it's because God simply chose to set his covenant love on Israel. And that's the prerogative of God, like it or not. Right? I mean, that, that's, that's the sort of the difficulty of this teaching, is that God chooses whom he will. God chooses to set his love on whomever he will. The other thing I wanted to sort of clarify about this passage, though, is that the, the hatred language also needs some comment, I think. 
the hatred language here, I would argue, is, is relative and somewhat hyperbolic. Right? It's relative in the sense that in comparison to the way that God has set his affection on Israel, the way that he rebukes and judges Edom is as if it were hatred. And, and it's sort of similar, and to speak of it as, as hyperbolic, it's sort of similar to the way that Jesus says, the one who comes to me and doesn't hate his father and his mother and his wife and his children, yea, even his own life, is not worthy of me. Jesus is not literally saying that the Christian's duty is to despise his own family. Right? He's simply saying in a hyperbolic way, a kind of prophetic hyperbole, he's saying in comparison to the devotion that you have to Christ, your love for yourself and your family and so on, is as if it were hatred, right? And, and the reason why I emphasize that is not because I'm going soft. I mean, the Bible says what it will say. But we also have to put text with text, right? And we have to understand the whole sweep of what God teaches in Scripture. And we know from innumerable places in Scripture that God loves all that he's made. That God has a general love, not just for humans, but also for animals, right? Also for the whole creation. God, in a sense, loved creation into being. And certainly that's true for his image bearers, those who are made in his own image and likeness, that God loves all humanity in one very real sense that we should not be embarrassed to admit, right? I think sometimes those of us who might identify more with Calvinistic or Reformed theology can get nervous about this. And I would just suggest, like, if, if, if you are too Calvinist, that you can't admit the universal love of God for all human beings, you need to rework some things in your theology. Because the Bible actually does acknowledge that God loves all that he has made. Now, in another sense, we, again, we have to think holistically, you have to think synthetically about all that Scripture teaches. In another sense, God has chosen to set his special electing covenant love, in this case, upon Israel and not Edom. We have to do justice to that too, right? It's not, it's not a matter of picking and choosing. It's just a matter of considering all that the scriptures teach, right? And so in, in, in one sense, in this sort of relative and hyperbolic sense, God loves Jacob, hates Esau. But in another sense, God loves Esau too. Think about how God treated Esau, even in the story of Jacob and Esau, how God still blessed him, still prospered him, and, and gave him, you know, many... Uh, you know, much wealth and, and, and cattle and so on. I mean, so again, we have to just think about this in holistic ways. Even still, though, I, I'm not trying to take the edge off of what God is saying in this text. We have to sort of do justice to what God is saying here. The point that is being underscored to Israel is the evidence of his love for them is that he chose them and not the other nations, right? So the electing love of God for Israel is what's being emphasized in this passage that God has chosen, even though Israel did not deserve it any more than Edom, God has chosen to set his special covenant love upon Israel. And the same thing is true for all true believers in Jesus Christ today, in the new covenant, that God loves you. If you, if you are trusting in Jesus Christ this morning, God loves you because he chose you. He specially chose you before the foundation of the world, Paul says. He chose his people, to be united to Christ, to be adopted into his family, to be predestined as sons, so that he might present us holy and blameless before him, God chose you. That's the evidence. If you want to know, how do I know that I'm chosen? 
the very evidence that you're here clinging to Christ, however feebly, clinging to Christ by faith is evidence that God loves you. Because there's a whole bunch of people who don't even care to be in a church on a Sunday morning. There's a whole bunch of people who don't even care that they struggle with sin. There's a whole bunch of people who don't have any faith and don't really have any remorse about it. And so the very fact that you're here clinging to Christ in all of the weakness of your faith is evidence that God loves you, that God chose you, that God set His affection, His covenant love upon you. And Malachi begins the book like this. Malachi is going to have a lot of hard words for us in this book uh, about adultery, about idolatry, about, again, half-hearted worship, about tithes and offerings, about divorce. I mean, there's a lot of hard stuff, a lot of rebuke in the book of Malachi. But God begins with an emphasis on his love. Because all that he has to say in correction of us comes in the wake of his prevenient, that is the grace that comes before we even do anything for him. The grace that is already presented to us. The love that God has already chosen to set upon us. And I just think some of you, maybe all of us, need to just hear this really clearly this morning, that God loves you. No, really. God loves you. No matter what you've done. No matter how you feel. And the fact that God chose you before the foundation of the world is evidence of that. God chose you before you had committed any of those sins that you could think about right now that cloud your vision or sense of God's love. And he knew those things and chose you anyway. Do you understand? Do you understand what I'm saying to you? God chose you before the foundation of the world. God chose you knowing all of those sins that would cloud your view of his love. And he chose you anyway. God loves you. God loves you, church. No, no, no matter how you feel on any given day. If you're ever going to do anything about these sins that need to be addressed, it has to begin with a certainty and assurance that God loves you. How has he loved you? He's chosen you in Christ. So that's the first point from this passage. The second dispute uh, in verses uh, 6 all the way through uh, chapter 2, verse 9 shows us that even though God has loved us, we have actually despised Him through our half-hearted worship. And so let me just read those verses, and, and uh, I have a few reflections on them. Uh, this is Malachi uh, chapter 1, verse 6. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? Says the Lord of hosts. And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, he will, show will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. And I will not accept an offering from your hand. 
For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name, and a pure offering, for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted, that its fruit, and its fruit, that is, its food may be despised. But you say, what a weariness is this, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick. And this you bring as your offering? Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has, made, who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. And then continuing in chapter 2. And now, O priest, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them, because, they, because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring, and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. I wanted to read that whole passage there, uh, just so we could get a sense of the, the rebuke that's coming upon Israel, especially in terms of Israel's priests. And because of what we, we read in the New Testament about the new covenant in Christ, we, we understand that all believers in the new covenant are priests. So this is not just a, a rebuke that's being leveled at our elders, or those who would stand here and preach, or those who have some other leadership and ministry. This is a rebuke that's leveled at all Christians. Because all Christians are priests one to another. One of my favorite lines from, from a Baptist minister uh, who, who said that in the church there are priests at every elbow. All of us are priests one to another. All of us are priests before God. We are a kingdom of priests in the church. So this is a rebuke that lands on all of us. And, you know, there's, there's a lot that, that stands out there, but I just wanted to just reflect on this with uh, some questions just to get you to th be thinking about ways that this might apply to us. This idea that Israel had polluted the Lord's table, how? By not bringing the best of the flock, right? They wanted to keep that for themselves, and they were giving God the leftovers. So think about this in our own lives. How are we polluting the Lord's altar, and despising his table. Are we giving God our leftovers? Or are we giving, giving him the first and best? Are you giving God the first and best of your financial resources? Are you giving God the first and best of your time? Even of your day? I, I mean, this may be very simple, but I, I, I still think there's wisdom in starting your day by devoting yourself to prayer and meditation on God's Word. 
Just to begin, the, the, just to frame the day in that way, communicates to God, I'm giving you my very best. I'm not, I'm not going to have some leftovers for you at the end, maybe, if I get around to it, but I'm going to give you the first and best of my day, and of all of my days, of all of my time. Are you giving God the first and best in your relationships, your marriage, your family, your friendships? Is God first in those relationships? Or are things like education or sports or activities or entertainment crowding out giving God the first and best in our families and in our relationships? I think think there's so many applications here because God, as this passage makes clear, God is worthy of our very best. You wouldn't give your leftovers to the Persian governor. That's what he says here. See see how they're going to take that. You you wouldn't give your your leftovers to those you're trying to impress, but you you give your leftovers to God. He describes in chapter 2 then what a true priest looks like, especially in verses 5 to 9. A true priest is characterized by fear, the fear of the Lord, by awe, by true instruction, by walking in peace and uprightness, by turning others from sin, by not showing partiality in their instruction. Does that describe you as a believer to other believers? Are you walking in uprightness? Are you holding fast to sound doctrine? Are you teaching others, instructing others, turning them from iniquity, encouraging them to turn away from their sins? Are you acting as a faithful or a faithless priest? (laughs) Again, this is is a, a hard rebuke, I think, if you really are honest with your own your own life, your own heart. But that's why I think one of the emphases that we see at the beginning of chapter two is this this repeated phrase of of laying it to heart, or taking it to heart. Did you notice that? Verse 2, if you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart. And then again at the end of verse 2, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. I think that's the real takeaway for us um, from this section, is that it's a matter of the heart. Our home church pastor always said this cliche, you've probably heard it before too, but I still think it's true. that The heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. There's a reason why things become cliches, because they're true, right? Um, they're truisms because they're true. The heart of the matter, if you're going to give faithful, undefiled worship to God as a priest in the kingdom of Christ, it's a matter of the heart. Will you take it to heart? What will you do this day? This week, even this afternoon, not to just let these words go through one ear and out the other and move on with the rest of your life, but what will you do to set it to heart, to lay it to heart, to internalize it, to take the risk of going within? It's a risk, right, to sort of expose yourself, to open your own heart up even to your own uh, self-reflection. We, we, we try um, most days in most ways, like we are trying to avoid going within, we're trying to avoid facing the man in the mirror, right? And so we crowd out those kinds of self-reflections. We, we, we push others aside because we don't want them to see what's within. It's a risk to go within, to go deep within and take these things to heart. Not to just let them slip through one ear 
and out the other. Well, the next dispute here at the end of chapter 2, uh, verses 10 to 16, uh, sort of extends this rebuke of Israel uh, beyond the priests to the whole covenant community. And I think the emphasis here is that we have profaned the Lord through our, through our idolatry and adultery. Let's pick up in verse 10 there. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughters of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord has witness, was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does, for the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. So there's kind of two different problems here, and they're both related to sex. Uh, and this is where it gets awkward, right, for us to address these things. But what the first thing that, that Israel is being rebuked for, the reason why God is not receiving their offerings is because they've intermarried with idolatrous peoples and have ended up, you know, just, just think, sort of like Samson following his lusts or Solomon following his lusts, leading, him into, leading them into idolatry. That's what's happening across the covenant community. They're just intermarrying with all the, the Canaanite peoples around them and following them into their idolatry. And then the second thing is, people are being faithless to their wives. They're committing adultery. They're divorcing their wives. Even within, the, even within the covenant community, even if they've married a fellow Israelite, they're being faithless and committing adultery and seeking divorce. And what God is saying is, those things that you think are in your private lives are not really in your private lives. There really is no private life in, in, in the scheme of things. What you do in private affects whether or not God will receive your offering. And again, there's probably tons of applications that we could draw here. Some of them are just right there on the surface, though, right? Don't marry unbelievers. Those of you who are not yet married, it's the clear teaching from both Old Testament and New and across the, the centuries of Christian history as well that you shouldn't marry people who are not believers in Christ. Now, Paul gives instructions for those who find themselves after the fact in marriages with an unbelieving spouse. And he says, don't divorce them, right? There's a passage in Ezra where, you know, Ezra actually tells them to divorce in, in this same time period. He actually tells them to put away their wives. I'm going to leave that to one side because I'm not preaching Ezra this morning. I'm just going to tell you what the New Testament says, what Paul says in 1 Corinthians, is that if you find yourself in a marriage where you are married un unequally yoked to an unbeliever, you should stay in that marriage and be faithful as long as the, as long as the unbelieving spouse is willing. So this is not a matter of saying, after the fact, you should divorce. It's just say, saying that the ideal, God's ideal, is that you would marry someone who's a fellow believer in Jesus Christ. And again, the, the language that we uh, often use from 
2 Corinthians 6, 14, is that we should not be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. Think about like, like a yoke of over two, two oxen, where you have like one strong oxen and one really weak oxen. If there's an unequal yoke, then they won't be pulling in the same direction. They won't be pulling uh, for the same purpose. And I just think it's, it's a, it, this is a, a, an obvious application that just needs to be reiterated in our day, because I think a lot of people um, don't heed this biblical wisdom, that you should seek to marry someone who's a fellow believer, in fact, someone who is growing in their faith and puts Christ first. Like So that, let's let that be a warning to all of my children and any, anyone else who's listening, that this is God's plan, this is God's ideal for you, uh, any other young adults as well, this is God's ideal for you to be married to a growing believer in Christ. But I do think that there is a broader application of that unequal yoke uh, prohibition. That there are actually other ways that we can ally ourselves with unbelievers that end up making us complicit in idolatry and sin. It's not always the case. I mean, you can enter into business partnerships with unbelievers. Uh, That's not condemned by Scripture. But you can imagine some scenarios where being in partnership with an unbeliever would lead you to sin, would lead you to compromise, would lead you to be complicit in something that, that doesn't honor God. So even there, you need to be on the lookout, that you're not being dragged away into sin because of unbelieving relationships. The same thing we could, just, we could say more broadly about the culture. It's not, it's not a sin to engage in um, the, the sort of cultural artifacts of the culture, art, literature, movies, music, film. I mean, we're, we're not a fundamentalist church here. We don't, we're not trying to police what people listen or, or watch. Uh, so it's, we're not, we, we wouldn't suggest that uh, you have to sort of go out of the world and, and, and just become completely separate and quietistic away from the world. But is it possible to be tempted, to be led away into sin by what you watch or listen to or engage with? You bet it is, right? So there's a warning here that as we become allied to a particular unbelieving aspect of the world, we could also bring in the political realm as well, uh, you, you become so allied with unbelievers that you end up defending or being complicit in things that you would never have otherwise. So there's a warning here about, you know, from this intermarriage uh, rebuke, there's a warning that, that goes way beyond just marriage about the ways that we are complicit in the unbelieving culture. And then also, the same thing we could say about the adultery and divorce um, rebuke here. Again, our private lives matter to God. Um, God's purpose for marriage is this one flesh union with the Spirit in the midst. Isn't that a beautiful way of describing uh, uh, the marriage covenant? He made them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union. This is God's purpose for human sexuality, one man and one woman in a one flesh, whole person, holistic, body and soul, union, covenant relationship for life. And what's the purpose of it? At least one of the purposes of it? Godly offspring. So that, that, that matrix of, of purposes, of union, companionship, intimacy, procreation, all a part of what God has designed for one man and one woman in this lifelong commitment of marriage, which is why divorce is condemned here. Now, if this were a sermon on divorce or a Bible study on divorce, we'd have to go to the New Testament texts that have certain exceptions uh, to the divorce uh, prohibition, like in uh, the Gospel of Matthew, where Jesus says sexual immorality uh, is an exception for divorce, or in 1 Corinthians 7, 
and abandonment by an unbelieving spouse uh, as an exception. And there's lots of other questions that we have about remarriage and that sort of thing. Uh, you can ask Pastor Matt afterwards what he thinks about all that. Um, that's the benefit of not being the pastor. I'll just, you know, just ask him. Um, but any, anyway, uh, you know, the, it's, 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 what, what I would want to say about all of these issues of sexual sin is a, a couple of things. One is there's, there's mercy and grace in the gospel for every single sexual sin. So this is not a place, this, this church is not a place of judgment and condemnation but a place of love and grace and redemption and restoration. So no matter what you've done, no matter how you've sinned, and we are all sexual sinners in one way or another. That's not like a special category. All of us. I mean, Jesus says that lust is adultery. So all of us are complicit in sexual sin. And there is grace and restoration in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's one thing we need to make loud and clear. But we also need to be true to the biblical principles and parameters that we have laid out for us in Scripture because they're for our good. And those things have to stay together, grace and truth, right? We're not saying that, like, we we're just going to affirm everything because that's the most, actually, that's not the most loving thing to do. To affirm people in their sin is not loving. So we have to be clear that there are certain things that are sinful. And it's not just the things that are sort of out there in somebody else's world, somebody else's temptation, somebody else's problem, but it's the stuff that's in here, too. The stuff that it's in here, too, Right? And so we, we don't want to make excuses for our sin. We need to, we need to be very clear that God condemns uh, uh, divorce in this passage. God condemns adultery. God condemns lust. God condemns homosexual behavior. God condemns all kinds of things, fornication. I mean, all kinds of things that are clearly condemned in Scripture. We just can't compromise on that. But we also need to clearly affirm that no matter how you've sinned in any of those ways, if you will repent and believe in the gospel, there is forgiveness and restoration for you. You're not a pariah to God, but God has taken the initiative to save you in Jesus Christ. And so that's, we have to just sound both of those bells, ring both of those bells of grace and truth. That I, again, that's why Malachi begins with love. He begins with love before he goes to adultery. God loves you because God chose you, but God still has a standard that he wants us to live up to. The other thing that stood out to me in this section, again, is this emphasis on, on the heart or, or on the spirit. Notice what he says uh, in, uh, this is in verse 15 and also in verse 16. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of, of your youth. And then again at the end of verse 16, so guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Again, the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. If you find yourself struggling with sexual sin, it's a matter of the heart before it's a matter of the hands. And so you have to lay these things to heart. You have to take care, guard yourself in your spirit. You have to, as Teresa of Avila put it, tend the interior castle. We all have an interior life where we live before God. The true self, that's what the heart is here. The true self as it stands exposed before God. And we have to do the, the work of the heart, the work of the interior man, the, the inner person, before we can ever address the issues that manifest themselves in our behaviors. It's a matter of the heart. That's what Jesus says, that adultery, murder, theft comes out of the heart. Well, the last section here in verses uh, 17 uh, through uh, chapter 3, verse 5, 
teaches us this, that we have wearied God with our faithlessness, so God is coming Himself to purify us. We have wearied God with our faithlessness, so God is coming Himself to purify us. Um, Verse 17, you have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied Him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and He delights in Him. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Let me just stop there and say, we live in a time where people call what is evil good and what is good evil. I mean, that, that's, that's taught not just here in Malachi, also in Isaiah 5, uh, verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and, and good evil. And, and a number of places throughout the prophets. And there are some obvious ways that our culture does that. Uh, again, thinking about all, all the ways that our culture affirms all manner of sexual perversion. Or the way that our culture affirms like the, the evil of abortion. Right? I mean, there, there's a, a, a social media campaign over the last several years called Shout Your Abortion. Where people are trying to say abortion is not just something that is unfortunate, but it's something that you should be proud of, that you shouldn't feel any shame or guilt over. Right? And we could point to some obvious ways that, you know, the, the culture glorifies, uh, you know, vanity and celebrity and greed. People who are successful in life because of their, their, their greed and their acquisitiveness. I mean, there, there are all kinds of ways that our culture very obviously takes things that are evil and calls them good, and, and then takes things that are good and calls them evil, right? But I think there's also, even in these verses, a kind of sad irony to that whole project of calling evil things good. Because it's, it's almost as if the people being described here are trying to convince themselves, Right? I mean, look at it again. How have we wearied him? By saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. I mean, obviously, that's on its face ridiculous. Right? But then he goes on at the end of the verse by asking, where is the God of justice? And I, you almost can hear two different senses of that, of that question. Right? In one sense, it may be them saying, like Peter describes in the New Testament, God's not going to come back. Where's God, you know? Uh, he's, he, there's been this promise that he's coming back, and, and he hasn't. So it's sort of, where is the God of justice? We're going to do whatever we want. That's, that seems to be part of it. But then there's another part that's sort of this, this kind of yearning. Where's the God of justice? Here we are living back from exile. We've got a new temple. We're still under Persian rule. We're still struggling with poverty. We're still struggling with political oppression. Where's the God of justice? They're trying to convince themselves that these avenues of sin are actually the good life. It reminds me of uh, that penetrating dystopian novel by Walker Percy, Love in the Ruins. where one, There's this uh, poignant line in the novel where the protagonist says, everyone was happy and our hearts broke with happiness. Everyone had what they wanted, everyone had what they needed, and yet they realized it wasn't really bringing them true satisfaction. People were struggling with high blood pressure and anxiety. Think about that. Is that not a fit description of our own culture? People are trying to convince themselves that this is the good life, but they're still crying out, 
in their heart of hearts, where's God? Where's the God of justice? Well, God shows up in chapter 3. Behold, I send my messenger. Again, that's the word Malachi. Behold, I send Malachi, my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will come suddenly to the temple. Again, isn't it the case that all of our longings, even our sinful ones, are pointers to us that there is a God who will satisfy all of our needs? The, the one you're actually seeking whenever you seek pleasure and sin is God. You just don't know it. Right? You, you call evil good. You, you say, where is the God of justice? What you're actually seeking is the Lord to come. You just don't realize it. The Lord whom you seek will come to His temple, will suddenly come to His temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, He is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now, there's a lot going on here. We probably are already making the connection in that first verse to John the Baptist. If you've been around the church and the Bible long enough, you recognize embedded within this uh, is a prophecy of another Malachi, another messenger, another prophet who would prepare the way for the Lord, the way that John the Baptist prepared the way for Jesus. And then the one who shows up here is the Lord coming to his temple. We might here think about Jesus entering into the, the temple uh, during his last week before his passion and, and death. So the way, all of this is prophetic of the coming of John the Baptist, the coming of Jesus. What's interesting is that the, the Lord is referred to here as the messenger of the covenant. There's two messengers here that are described in this passage. There's my messenger who will prepare the way, and then there's the Lord who is called the messenger of the covenant. Like, you know, it's, it's those last two phrases, the Lord will come suddenly to his temple, whom you seek, and my messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. There's a parallel there in the, in the Hebrew. You can even see it in, in the English as well. That you're, the the Lord whom you seek will come, and the messenger of the covenant whom you delight, in whom you delight. So I think what's being described there is the Lord and the messenger of the covenant are the same person. And that's a different person than my messenger who prepares the way for that person. Now, for the Old Testament believer, you've got to wonder, what were they thinking? How is it that you have this messenger of the covenant who's also identified with the Lord himself? But is that not indeed what the New Testament says about Jesus? That in Jesus Christ, he is both the Lord himself come to his temple suddenly to save his people and also the messenger of the covenant, the Messiah, the Davidic king. He's both God and man in one person. The one who comes to save us is the Lord himself in the flesh who comes to his temple. That's what Jesus is doing the last week of his life as he enters into the temple and cleanses it. As he, say, he is saying, I am the one who is enacting all of these Old Testament pro prophecies. I am the Lord. I am the messenger of the covenant. And that's the answer. That's the, that's the solution to all of these problems that we've been examining in the covenant community of Israel, also in the new covenant community of the church. All of our half-hearted worship, all of our adultery, all of our idolatry, all of the ways that we weary God with our lack of faith, the answer is the Lord himself comes to purify us. Look at what it says next in verse 2. Who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver 
and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. The priests had, had despised the Lord's offerings. The people had profaned the Lord's uh, sanctuary, but it's all purified when Jesus comes. Jesus comes to refine us. I, I mean, I, I, a child of the 80s and 90s grew up singing that song, that contemporary Christian song, Refiner's Fire. How many of you know that song? Uh, only the older people like me. Um, Re- Refiner's Fire. I don't remember who wrote it. Um, but I think Vineyard sang it. Um, that's a good song. You should go listen to it this afternoon. Uh, Refiner's Fire. My heart's one desire is to be holy. Set apart for you, Lord. That's only possible because Jesus came. Right? That's only possible because the Lord came to the temple. The messenger of the covenant came. He's the one who refines us. We don't refine ourselves. Don't walk away from this thinking, man, I've screwed up again. You know, Yeah, I've, I've, you said all those, I'm a terrible priest. Uh, I'm sexually immoral. Uh, I, guess I, I guess I better like have a plan to fix myself, to amend my life. I don't know. Jesus is the one who refines us. How does it happen? It happens by laying it to heart, by guarding yourself in your spirit. It's about the internalizing of the accomplishment of Jesus Christ. God wants to change you, but it's not a matter of you just pulling yourself up by your own bootstrap and figuring out a better 10-step plan to fix yourself. But it's about the Lord coming like fuller's soap to cleanse you. There's also judgment coming as well, though. We see that in verses 5. In verse 5 there. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, and those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. There's lots more there we could reflect on, the ways that we too commit all of these sins. But the root sin described there at the end, they do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Do you fear him? The Lord is coming to his temple. He has come, and he is coming. Again, as we move toward Advent in just a couple weeks, we acknowledge that the Lord has come and that he is coming again. In fact, I think we can speak about a kind of threefold coming of the Lord especially as we prepare uh, to take the Lord's Supper in just a moment. In one sense, the Lord has come in the past in His incarnation, His nativity, His life, His death, His resurrection, His ascension, His outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Those are all events past to us. The mysteries of the gospel that have already come. We've already borne witness to them. He has come. There's another sense in which He is coming in His second advent, His appearing His second coming. He's coming to judge the living and the dead and to establish His everlasting kingdom. But in the meantime, the Lord comes in the present. The Lord comes to us in word and sacrament and says to us, I will refine you yet again. The Lord has come. He is coming, but He also comes. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we do ask for Your mercy. We have sinned against you in so many ways, but we thank you that we're assured as kind of bookends from this passage.
that you love us, that you've chosen us, that you've chosen to draw near to us in Jesus Christ. We pray that that confidence would give us the faith to grow and change, that we might set these things to heart. In Jesus' name, amen.